Hello, and welcome to Make My Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jana Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner. Holy shit. Excelsior. It sounds like you're pretty shocked, Elias. It sounds like you're, one might even say, shook. I am shooken in, shooketh to my core by the Hellfire Gala. Yeah, so I take oh it uh, you've been reading X-Men? Am I reading X-Men? Am I reading X-Men? What kind of a podcast do you think we're on? Yeah, if our, as our loyal listeners know, we really like X-Men, and we've been on a whole kick with a lot of other things. We've been taking a tour around the Marvel Universe. We've mentioned X-Men here and there because we can't resist, but here we are. We're going through the new world order. Uh, Krakoa has fallen, and we want to talk about it. Yep, and for... Longtime listeners, you may know we had a segment called Baseline X that got renamed uh, to a name I don't remember. We are not going to be doing that this time because the list is ungodly long, and those episodes were starting to crawl into two hours of mostly samey litigation. And I I still love mostly samey litigation, but you were saying? I think one day we're going to do a giant like a totality finality. We're going to pick a point and we're going to really talk about uh, the era, but it's not over yet. No. And well, kind of, (laughs) kind of, sort of. This is like, we've entered act three is the wrong word, but that really is what this feels like. We had the Hickman era, which ended with Inferno. And then we had kind of the transitional period And now we're in the fall. And what comes after that, we don't know. This could be a Shakespeare play, five acts. This could be a Hollywood movie, three acts. We don't know. But we feel like we're in something substantially different, finally, from what was coming before. You hadn't mentioned Shakespeare acts, and that's really throwing me. Now now I'm trying to think it through. But um, (laughs) this is kind of like coming out of Inferno, it didn't really feel like uh, everyone was acting all that different. Like um, some of the, some secrets about the quiet council and some sketchy shit they were doing kind of came to light, but uh, it, it kind of you know, left like a tremor, but it quickly things got back to normal. But like the status quo that we are familiar with has been torpedoed. Uh, the rules have been changed. The genres of the books have really changed, but like, it's still feeling like an epic soap opera, like never before. It's great. It's fucking great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hundred percent. So, what got us here? Yeah. So, what got us here? We're gonna. Well, before we talk about the Hellfire Gala, uh, you realized we hadn't talked about uh, Sins of Sinister on the show yet. Oh shit, we had. I mean, didn't we? Was it just starting the last time we did our list? I think so. I yes, I think we were. Some of the issues had happened. Hmm. But it certainly hadn't finished, and now it's concluded. And yeah, I. Uh, I was pretty, I was, I guess I was a little skeptical going into Sins of Sinister Mm -hmm. because I thought I knew exactly what was going to happen, but it was like a twisty, shocking delight. Yeah. I don't really know what to say about Sins of Sinister because it's, it felt like Ten of Swords. Yeah. In a way. It was like its own genre Mm -hmm. and everything was tying into it. Stands alone. 
And like they were doing the stuff where they were making it look like a degraded 70s VHS tape <laughs> and like really, really trying to get this like sense of genre. And when I saw that, I thought this was going to be like um, Age of X-Men where like everybody gets to uh-huh. have fun in the space and then we kind of sweep it away. Uh-huh. But that ended up not being the case at all. I thought um, no. like we both both the uh, things happened that were like points of no return and also um foreshadowing happened like we we know the doom we are approaching and i think i said on this very podcast years and years and years and years and years ago that the i won't believe the end game for krakow oh. has truly started mm-hmm. until the character rasputin 4 arrives in the present day you did you did in and fact that has, say that. That has transpired. So by my definition, I think this is the uh, final act, the end game. Okay. So you think you think Krakoa is is done and gone forever, never to be rebuilt. No, 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 I don't think that. I mean, there's definitely a version of this where Krakoa comes back uh better than ever like they get to reform and now maybe some less uh terrible sketchy villainous mutants have some power for once. Mhm. Right. It seems like uh, Logan and Jean and uh, Nightcrawler and Storm would do like a fine job at leading the island way better than Magneto and Professor X and Mystique and Apocalypse. Yeah, it really was a rogues gallery of uh, sketchy people, although A did end up proving himself till he disappeared into (laughs) the wastelands to get murked by by uh, his former wife. I mean, soon to be returning, uh, it looks like. But so, um, so the Sins of Sinister ends with um, Rasputin in the present. Uh, she, she was like enslaved by Sinister. And then in this really uh, earned conclusion, Sinister gives her back her free will. And she does a bunch of time travel stuff. And now she's trapped in the present just in time for the Hellfire Gala. And I think uh, your expletive reaction at the top of the show had a lot to do with your reaction to the Hellfire Gala, yeah? Oh, yes. I was expecting so little from this issue. I was expecting, I don't know, you know, we keep getting these basically state of the nation issues is basically what they are. Big party, Met Gala, and that's the idea. First year, you know, they terraformed Mars, which was really cool. Yeah, that was like a big that felt like an annual for the whole line in a cool way. Mm -hmm. And then the second year was the reveal to the public of what's it called? Of resurrection. Thank you. Of resurrection. And And that felt like less seismic. That felt like a natural next beat of the story. Mm hmm. Yeah. And more of a kind of an. a checking in with everyone, you know, bringing them together before sending them apart. And I thought they were going to do something like that again here. You know, we were going to develop one of the other um, threads, which was kind of the, the Krakoan medicines had been tainted and Duggan had been kind of building to that in his book. Uh, And I thought that was kind of come to a head, you know, Shaw was doing something sketchy. It's going to be more political machinations. And a lot of that does happen. But first, I think there's a a thing that we have to talk about that also has to do with uh, our skepticism coming into this, because so just real quick and dirty uh, recap in the pages of Spider-Man, Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan was Mm -hmm. killed in a very quick swerve. It was weird that it happened not in her book. 
It was weird the amount of fanfare or lack thereof. It was weird that she has a movie coming out soon, and that just doesn't seem like the corporate synergy I know from the Disney Corporation. And it felt extra weird that, like, there had been no talk of her in the X-Books or anywhere else outside of just kind of being in Spider-Man's book. Right. And then at the beginning of Hellfire Gala, uh, Kamala Khan is resurrected. She is a mutant. And mm. um, I want to Elias. Uh, how, issue. Uh, how, how do you feel about this development overall? It's kind of crazy. I mean, it was to be expected. They really wanted to make... Well, she was originally supposed to be a mutant, and then they made her an inhuman because that was the corporate synergy at the time. Uh, and they got a lot of really cool stories out of that. And now I really like the direction that Duggan has taken her in. Like, the the in-story stuff, I really like. I, I do actually think there's there's a lot of interesting additional dilemmas here, especially because all the rest of the Inhumans are somewhere. Are they dead? It's been a while since I've checked in with the Inhumans. They yeah. might be in space. I don't want to know. There was the death of the Inhumans thing, which was... That was more of a metaphoric death. I, I don't know. Something. Um, I did read the death of the Inhumans. I read it in my local library sitting on a comfy chair. It was nice. Just, uh, I guess what the thing I just need us to acknowledge is both of us were so sneering at this development, mm-hmm. uh, making Kamala Khan a mutant again because uh, of all the crazy movie shit and uh, just like really didn't feel like character growth for the sake of character growth. But right away, like you said, Kamala Khan wakes up, she finds out she's a mutant and that she's got to keep that a secret because of how people feel about mutants. Mm-hmm. And she's got this kind of like child of two worlds, but of neither thing going on now because mutants and inhumans have historically had a problem, especially while Kamala Khan's been around as a character. Yeah. Um, and now she's both of them. And all of a sudden she's like a dealing with uh, intersectional bigotry like never before because now she's uh, a teenage Muslim girl in New Jersey. She's a college kid now, and she's a mutant, and she's an inhuman, and mutants hate inhumans, and inhumans Mm. hate mutants. It's just like um, it suddenly feels like a rich conflict instead of just like, oh, and now she's going to hang out with uh, Nightcrawler or something. Yeah, perfect. I'm still mad. Yeah, you're mad that how good a job they did. Yeah, I'm... Matt is right. Matt is how I feel, too. And the Hellfire Gala is going down, and it's like a pretty, um, it, it's, a, it's a lot of the same beats we've seen before. It's like a lot of fun costume designs and seeing characters interact and having, like, quick two-panel exchanges, right? It's, it's business as usual, but, like, something's off. Characters keep getting mysterious calls. People keep saying uh, portentous stuff. Mm-hmm. And we get to the um, the part where they elect the new team of X-Men and there's the great full page spread introducing the team. And I'm not even going to run through the team because I think though, you did that last time, too, because you see the team get introduced. You turn the page and then there's just a picture of Nimrod. It says, sorry to drop in and just like an explosion Ugh. of blood and limbs as Nimrod just tears through the motherfucking X-Team. And it's this begins horrifying. Yeah. And then um, a, a juggernaut gets like thrown to oblivion. Uh, Dazzler gets really graphically pancaked. Um, Iceman is the death that I got really upset by where uh, Nimrod oh. grabs his head and then melts the ice from his skull Ugh. in front of his uh, boyfriend. And his eyes are like popping out. And he's crying. Yeah, they really sold like 
the horror of what this means. Yeah, and it just keeps on going. Like, um, there's you know, there's more plot beats, but there everything is framed by like horrific, creative, upsetting deaths by of beloved characters. Mm-hmm. And this, I guess, really helps sell the impact of death again. Because for a while, death had meaning, but as story potential, because they could always come back unless, you know, writers are always finding creative ways around that to give it some additional meaning. But now you're just like, oh, my God, that's traumatic. Oh, they'll be able to come back. And then the other shoe drops when Dr. Stasis comes uh, waltzing through Literally the waltzing. gates. Literally with what's is that Omega Sentinel? Yeah, that's Omega Sentinel. Yeah, they come waltzing through and systematically take down the rest of basically every heavy hitter in order well, for Charles Xavier to surrender and send all the mutants away. It gets kind of, so it gets logistically a little complicated, but the breakdown is the Orcus, the bad guys reveal that they've tainted the medicine that Krakow has been trading to the world. And Mm -hmm. basically there's a button. And if they push that button, any human who has taken that medicine will just drop dead. And whose finger is on that button? Motherfucking Modoc, which is like the scariest idea for a story. Anyone's ever come up with. Holy (laughs) shit. His tiny little baby hands. His tiny little baby hands. And then, as you said, Professor X then surrenders. So he's got to um, he and he's uh, part the terms of the surrender. He's got to send all the mutants through the portal to um, go elsewhere, supposedly to Araco. Yeah, to go to Araco. But a lot of X-Men who are trained are also trained in how to resist Xavier's telepathy. And that scatters them. So now there's a handful of mutants living in the New York sewers in the old Morlock tunnels. Some were able to go through the gates and end up somewhere else. Mystique dashes herself on the rocks. That's it's that's a that was one of the more upsetting scenes. Yeah, honestly. and it's also really upsetting. Every time someone dies, they um, they, you know, you get to see their loved one is uh, watching on and screaming and crying. Always. Jean gets fucking decapitated by Robo Moira McTaggart. We find out that uh, Cyclops had been something happened to him in the free comic book day issue. Uh, uh, he was he was captured and now he's being tortured. Oh, OK. And uh, I think, as you mentioned, um, uh, and another group of mutants it found themselves in this mysterious desert. And I'll, we'll touch upon that a little bit more in a second. But what I love yeah, about we this don't desert- learn that until uh, Immortal X-Men, because in the issue, we just see Xavier on the beach screaming about how he, he killed everyone because he can't sense them anymore. Yeah, and uh, we don't know where this desert is, and it's kind of giving the vibe of it's in like it's like a mythical desert. It's like a mm-hmm. desert, the, the desert of trials that you have to cross to get to your uh, destination, where you can become what you need to become. Forty days and forty nights. Yeah, but like I don't know, is this desert on Earth? Is it in the Middle East? Is it in the American Southwest? Is it somewhere else? I don't know. Probably on some random planet. Is yeah, it outside of time? Yeah, but that's so that's just like a cool thread. And like you said, we end the issue with um, Professor Xavier crying on the beach because he thinks he's just murdered all the X-Men, which rules. Uh, and also, did Kieran Gillen give the instructions to artists to draw miserable Professor Xavier <laughs> looking like Kieran Gillen? Because it looks exactly like Kieran Gillen. <laughs> 
I, I don't think so, but I wonder if the artist went, you know who's the perfect reference? My writer. Well, the question is, did the artist do it slyly or did Karen Gillan say like, hey, I'm, I look a lot like miserable Charles Xavier <laughs> with a sadness beard. <laughs> Whatever it is, I love it. It's the best thing in the world. So I guess um, there's a couple of characters I want to touch upon and then we'll take a break and then we'll come back and talk about some of the individual series. Okay. But I want to talk about what's been going down with the Quiet Council because and the five because that entire concept has been shattered. Yeah. Well, the Quiet Council had already been kind of slowly... Crumbling. Yeah, slowly crumbling. First, Sins of Sinister took out a few people on on there because they were suspected to have been contaminated still by Sinister's gene. So they couldn't vote. They couldn't do stuff. Then, not Rasputin. uh, Mikael... Uh, Colossus. Colossus, Colossus, who is compromised by, uh, is by that Rasputin? <laughs> well, so Colossus is Peter Rasputin, and his brother yeah. is the evil Mikhail Rasputin, who okay. is working with the uh, Russian uh, intelligence services to uh, mind control Colossus, to doing horrifying shit while on Krakoa. Yeah, so he's put in charge of a bunch of proxy votes, and because of that, he's able to undermine them even more and get out some others out of the council. So the whole thing's just kind of been falling apart for a while. Not to mention, and now they're um, literally scattered to the wind. Yeah, and like, uh, it, like you said, they've been crumbling for a while, but they have been dashed. They are destroyed, and like, even if Krakoa returns in some form, there will definitely not be a quiet council anymore. No, not not in the not in the least. Um, over in Immortal X Men, uh, Celine briefly was, uh, t- uh, you know, considered to be on the council. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, her and Shaw being extremely duplicitous, they're now working together. But what's really funny, yeah, for Orcus. But what's really fun is um, their counterparts who they're like battling against are Emma Frost and Wilson Motherfucking Fisk. I can't believe I'm rooting for Wilson Fisk. I'm always rooting for Wilson Fisk. That dude is lovable. That dude is evil and lovable. I don't know. I I am shocked that that this is happening. But like, what another great twist! And he had just arrived uh, asking for diplomatic immunity because his wife is a mutant, which is brilliant. Well, that seemed brilliant. And then there had been a minute where I'm like, are they going to do anything with that? Or is this one of these great ideas that nobody ever picks up? But it's hugely central to the story now because they're in a close partnership and they're the ones living in the Morlock tunnels. Uh, Emma mm-hmm. Frost is totally not even using her real name anymore. She's yeah. uh, And I think one of our less favorite threads throughout Krakoa has been the Emma Frost, Wilson Fisk stuff, mostly playing out in Marauders. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, but but it really came together for me now in this way that if I go back and read that, I think um, I'll have a new appreciation for it. Probably it's it it took the long long game and maybe still wasn't the most engaging. But this is the kind of stuff I love to see in comics. Uh, One hundo. And there's one more character I really want to um, check out before we get to some of the books. And that is um, a character who I think we're just calling Shadow Cat. With a K. With a K. Ugh. I 
fucking love it. I love that we're calling her Shadow Cat with a K. I lo- and th- like we keep saying, that issue was so traumatic that it really required an extreme reaction. And I love that Kitty Pride, Kate Pride, Shadow Cat gets to um, be our avatar of like righteous vengeance. Yeah, yeah. I kind of I wish she had her own book though. This is going to be weird to say, but I wish Shadowcat could get the Zdarsky Daredevil treatment. Absolutely. Not, like in terms of quality, but also in terms of like the way the story played out and the themes that were used. Like in there, Daredevil's Catholicism was so central, but not necessarily in like the very obvious ways. And I, I want that for Shadowcat. Because I think we're getting some of the obvious stuff with Duggan, but not some of the less obvious stuff. And this is obviously, if there's ever been a moment for a Shadowcat solo series, this is it. Of just, like, her on a ninja mission of killing people threatening mutants. Yeah. And and the reason I wanted to bring her up is the laws of Krakoa are no more, because Krakoa is no more. Mm. So murder. So there was that issue that I love so much where Shadowcat, or I guess she was Cape Pride at the time— really injures all of those Russian soldiers who are trying to uh, stop the mutants from coming to Krakoa. Yeah. And we get a similar scene in uh, X-Men in motherfucking Israel of all places where, (laughs) um, where she repeats that, but now like totally fatally and uh, like uh, someone points a gun at her and then she uh, twists his hand. So he's pointing the gun at his head and then she phases the gun into his brain and he just like dies horrifically. Mm. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's phasing people into each other so that they die just like bleeding into each other or people's faces into the concrete ground. She kicks one guy in the nuts and phases her foot through his genitals in a way that did not leave them in the condition they found them. No, they were uh, scrambled. Yeah. Um, so just like crazy issue and crazy character development. And every time she shows up in somebody else's book, she's like the Punisher and she's so scary and it's great. What a great development and what a great response to of just like a primal scream of anger against the injustice of the world. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where she come where, where she is on the other side of this, because I have a feeling it's not going to fully last. But. Oh, now I'm just thinking if oh, damn it, I want I want dug in to lean into the resistance to the Nazis parallels of like defiance and like that kind of brutal vengeance in the woods. Yeah. Oh, literally the movie against defiance. Orcus and whatnot. Yeah. Literally, literally like the movie. Defiance. I thought you meant just like stories of defiance and I'm like, yeah, well, yes, yeah, the but, movie defiance. That's a, that's a pretty visceral movie. And I agree. Oh yeah. This, uh, this calls for that. Would you like to take a quick break? And when we come back, we're going to talk about some specific titles. Let's do it. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC3 cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince. And I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. 
We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, my wife, bad to end Dio impressions, this is bad, what the f***? And an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us and welcome back we're talking the beginning of the fall of x uh and i'm waiting for the ground to shake and the whole thing to come collapsing in on me uh while a raven crows in the background why because it's goth as hell yes that's my brand baby i'm very happy this whole era i think is not is gonna be your brand Although I mean, when has it I, not been my brand, right? You're right. Although it is weirdly billing itself as more punk than goth, if we're going by the way the uh, end and credits pages have been mixed up, like newsprint. Yeah, you're right. It's not like the zine quality now, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. Although it makes me miss Teeny Howard, who's the zine queen. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame she doesn't really have any books. Yeah, well... I'm sure she's, she's got off doing cooking. DC stuff. Yeah. Um, but so why don't you um, I, I thought we could talk about some of the specific titles that are new to the era uh, because I didn't have high expectations, but they kind of rule. Yeah, they I don't think there's been a bad issue so far. I'd like some more than others. Well, I guess the one thing that I just want to quickly touch on is right now it feels like there's a lot of issues, particularly for deceased characters, that are like flashbacky issues. Yes. Or, or miniseries. And I have not I I don't haven't been liking that as much as the other stuff. Just like there's so much immediate urgency in the conflict that suddenly being like, so before Iceman's skull was melted, uh, he like saved some people in a city square somewhere one time. I'm like there's more important fish to fry right now. Shadow Cat <laughs> is alive and she's killing people in Israel. I don't know. The Jean Grey book, I think, is has been, uh, well, we're one issue in. But I really dug it. I dug the the way it's, it's kind of constructing itself as being both immediate and, you know, backwards looking. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because I haven't read those original issues. Um, the basic conceit is Jean Grey is dead or not dead, maybe. We're not sure. But she's so powerful, she's, like, going back over her life and, like, what could I have changed? And she picks a moment and she changes it and then we're seeing the consequences of that. And it's kind of like those dark what-ifs. And I'm like, oh, this is fun. It's being written by Louise Simonson. Yeah, and that's cool. Although I feel like we've kind of seen this sort of thing before. I, that's just yeah. me, though. I, I'm not to yuck anybody's yum. We'll see. We'll see what consequence it has going forward. Because maybe she's going to come out of this as like another righteous fury, uh, full of rage. Character. I could use some of that, as clearly evidenced by uh, my shadow cat clearly. feelings. Clearly, but then we've got Children of the Vault, which. What is going on? Where did that come from? What is this book? So you tell me we're doing a Children of the Vault book. And like, um, I've really liked the stuff we've done with the Children of the Vault in the Krakoa era. 
Um, but like not the most memorable cast of specific characters. When I'm not looking at them, I kind of forget who they all are. Correct. So you say you're in the Children of the Bald Book. And I'm like not sure about that. But so then our two main characters are Bishop and Cable. And mm-hmm. what I love about this is there was a really ill-advised uh, Bishop heel turn where he and Cable were battling through time during the early hope issues of X-Men. Okay. Um, and Bishop, like, um, he murders an entire timeline in cold blood, like genociding a whole possible future and stuff. But Bishop gets really dark. And this issue is kind of touching on that dynamic. Like, they both know what the other one's capable of because they've fought so hard in the past. And, you know, the future past and their personal past. It's time travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's them kind of being that resistance that you were talking about and having to live under the radar as the children of the vault are like rebranding and becoming popular amongst the humans. Yeah. And they're like subtly mind controlling people to like them. Yeah, they're setting. Yeah, they have this whole setup and um, it's very eerie. But this book came out of the gate with like such a strong identity such a great swerve with what they were doing with Children of the Vault, who had kind of been in stasis for a few years, literally. Mm-hmm. And um, such a great duo to pick as your protagonists. I was just a, uh, I would, I would never have pitched a Cable and Bishop on the Run Together book, but it's great. Yeah, and I was definitely caught off guard by that. And even though I didn't know anything about their past. You, I could feel the tension between the characters in a way that wasn't just, like, weird and out of nowhere. Like, they had a past, but clearly it's more than that. You know, it's, they, they've moved beyond it in some way, but the the remnants are there still. It's good shit. That's so cool hearing uh, from the perspective of someone who hasn't read those issues how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a... There's a lot of cool history there. Some really weird comics that I should show you sometime with very crazy digital art that looks like PlayStation 1 graphics. Ooh. So the one issue that I actually missed before recording was Alpha Flight. What's going on with that? So I um, didn't have high expectations or hopes for Alpha Flight either. Although I like Alpha Flight as a team. There's some cool Alpha Flight members. I like Puck Mm -hmm. and Sasquatch. They're fun. And Alpha Flight also in recent years in Marvel were given to Carol Danvers as her supporting cast. Oh, yeah. And Alpha Flight became the name of the Earth defending superhero team that was led by Carol Danvers and the Hulk was involved with them, too. Yeah, that was a strange era. And then there was Gamma Flight. That was the Hulk related one. Yeah, it's a bunch of Alpha Flight members spin off to Gamma Flight to hang out with the Hulk. But historically, Alpha Flight are a Wolverine, like Wolverine supporting cast. So they're kind of X-Men associated. Mm-hmm. So the Alpha Flight comic is about they are requested to, like, bring in mutant fugitives by the Canadian government. Oh. And the whole issue is kind of upsetting because um, they're they're real arguing with each other stiffly about it. But, like, they're still doing it in this way that feels kind of sketchy. Uh-huh. And then the twist is they're really working with Dokken, Wolverine's son, to, like, be a mutant underground railroad. Now Alpha Flight is actually working from the inside to, like, uh, fight against their government's evil policies. And once I had that twist, I was like, you know what? I'm a million percent in. I love Alpha Flight being super good guys teaming up with their uh, former partner Wolverine's bad boy son and getting into trouble. That's great. (laughs) 
<laughs> the bad boy's son going to Canada. Where his dad's from. And he's from Japan. He doesn't fucking care about Canada. But here he is because he cares about mutants now because Krakoa, uh, you know, gave him like a context to be a nice guy. And it turns out he likes it. Thank you, X Factor. Yeah. Thank you, X Factor. Good stuff. Um, fun Alpha Flight characterization. Highly recommend. Hell yeah. Okay. What was Dark X-Men again? I as soon as you start describing the issues, I've, I've my brain is a little bit of soup right now. But as soon as you start describing the issues, I'm like, right, this happened and then this happened. So what was Dark X-Men again? Okay, so Dark X-Men, which is by um, uh, Steve Fox and oh. uh, with art by Jonas Scharf and colors by Frank Martin. What's up with Steve Fox? I recognize the name, but I don't really know where I know him from. He's more he's i'm trying to think what what you might know he's been kicking around marvel recently doing some miniseries and stuff right primarily he was working he's a friend of uh james tiny the fourth helped him do the razor blades anthology okay so he's primarily kind of like a horror guy um i think he's an editor i think that that's that's how they started but this is the first uh, issue by him that made me really sit up and take notice. And the the premise is uh, Madeline Pryor, the Goblin Queen and current Queen of Limbo, has an embassy in New York City. It's the Limbo Earth Embassy. Mm-hmm. Oh, and she's used. He's editing. You remember world, this book now? Well, yes, but he's editing World Tree and the Department editing world of Tree, Truth. Gotcha. Okay. Well, good job on both counts. Yep, you're right. That's where I've seen that name. Mm-hmm. Madeline Pryor is living in New York City, and she's using her diplomatic immunity to hide out mutants, particularly like bad guy mutants um, who would otherwise be taken in by the authorities. Mm. And the team is like a great team of dark X-Men characters. I'm just going to rattle them off for you real quick. We got Madeline Pryor as the leader. I mean, you've been experiencing Madeline in recent stuff. Do you like her as a character? I do. I do. She's She's been – well, I've been want, wanting to see more of her ever since Hellions. Yeah. And I'm really glad that she's getting to to kind of lead this book and be actually active and not weirdly vindictive. Like she's still vindictive, yeah. but it it feels directed and purposeful and like they're kind of using the weirdness of dark web to say she's a bit um what's not mercur- hysterical. I was going to say mercurial more in, in terms of like what she will go full tilt in. She's like, oh, you wronged me in this little way. Fuck you. Yeah. And that's kind of the vibe of this book. But she has a lot more agency, especially mm-hmm. because the character with the least agency is Alex Summers. Havoc <laughs> who is her little boyfriend at this point, And she treats him like shit. And the, the moment this book won me over is I don't like the character Havoc. I think this is I've been on the record uh-huh. and he is such a dipshit here. And I actually really like his presence because he's just like such a sad sack. And it's such a fun uh, counterpoint to all these like cool bad guy renegades. So in addition to um, Madeline Pryor and Havoc, we got Archangel, Gambit, uh, Nightcrawler's demon father, Azazel, Penance's like weird serial killer brother uh, M-Plate whose hands are little mouths that crave the vampiric power of mutant bone marrow. Horrifying. Right? What What a good scary character. Very scary. 
That's Monet's brother. He's super evil. He was a bad guy in Generation X. Yeah, Dark X-Men is uh, living up to its name. And Zero, who is a really weird character created by Karen Gillan in one of his first Marvel books, Generation Hope. And mm-hmm. Zero's deal is he is like, uh, he has like complete control over flesh and skin. Ooh. And he's like an abstract artist and he's trying to sculpt himself into like weird forms and he can like grow and get like tentacles and like become as big as the house. Gross. Yeah. And he's super. So these are the types of characters. He's a Cronenberg that, character. Yeah. He's Karen doing Cronenberg. Exactly. Ugh. And so their, their book is ended up being like kind of the New York on the streets book. Uh, because they're running around and like rescuing mutants in the city with like demon powers. It's great. Another one I strongly. And bringing them into the limbo uh, embassy. Yeah. Another strong recommendation for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then we got Uncanny Avengers. Which that one I th- you've read, right? Yes. And you, you touched on this one a little bit last time when we were talking about Captain America. It's well, it's the X-Men Avengers team, which is fascinating. Yeah, um, this is an idea they've done before, but already this feels a little bit stronger. And it's almost explicitly Captain America acknowledging how villainous he often comes across in X-Men books and like doing the work to write that maybe. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. It's, we'll see. And there, it's all, it's already an uneasy alliance of a team uh, with Penance, Rogue, Psylocke, Deadlock, Deadlock, Deadpool, God, Deadpool, uh, and Quicksilver, who is not a mutant. Right. And is maybe more, is is more an Avenger. Yeah. And um, and that's the more uh, establishment team. Um, and they're like working within the system to try to uh, do the right thing. And mm-hmm. uh, and so far, it's really good. Um, I like uh, that Rogue is the kind of the perspective character because she and Captain America have an uneasy history. Yeah, yeah. And I really I'm really glad that uh, Javier Garon is back on art, especially on an Avengers book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It just feels uh, I don't know. It feels like coming home. I can't disagree. Yeah, I'm very delighted by it. So Uncanny Avengers is fun, but it's maybe the slightest book so far. But um, yeah, I agree. I'm eager to see uh, its impact because this is like they're dealing with the villains on like a global scale. Mm-hmm. So like Stark Sentinels and uh, uh, there's a, the false flag. Uh, Captain Krakoa is doing that evil shit. Mm. And they don't know who it is and we don't know who it is. Which is classic. I love that kind of superhero comic stuff. But yeah, this is just like a real meat and potato superhero book and it's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a nice uh, contrast also to Duggan's other X book where it's much darker. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and he's he's kind of able to go a little darker, I think. And it's nice. It's nice to see that he can still do the uh, the breath of tone. Yeah. And there are just there are a couple other, I guess, ongoing plot threads that we're, we're dealing with in terms of. The X line. We've got all the Wolverine, X-Force, Ben Percy, Beast stuff, although that's kind of wrapped up. Um, So I don't know where we're going from here in those books. Uh, Wolverine's off dealing with Ghost Rider stuff for an issue or two, as he is wont to do. 
He does do that somewhat often. You're right. He does that so often. And then we got the Ms. Marvel miniseries, which last time I said I didn't didn't know if it was going to be any good. I had my reservations, and I've been proven wrong. I really enjoyed that first issue. Um, I also got Iman Vellani's name wrong, which I knew I did, but want to correct that. But did you read that issue? I did read that issue. Um, it was actually one of the best Ms. Marvel issues I've read in a couple of years. Yeah, it was just it was bouncy. It was engaging and it had all of the things you want from both a Ms. Marvel bo- book and kind of like like an X-Men book. And by putting her in college, they took a step forward mm-hmm. with a story that felt impactful and like you can't go back from. They're not going to – I mean, I guess they could do a, oh, and then she got aged down and actually her college degree – but like, why? Well, she's still in high school. She's doing a college pro- – program at the college. I think she's junior or senior. They have a, they had a little caption about that. Uh, okay. Well, in that case, I was mistaken. But nonetheless, I um, it, it feels like she's getting older and um, – and I just I like that the story feels like it's progressing. It's not in stasis. It feels like stuff can mm-hmm. matter because she can get older. Yeah, I kind of hope that she can leave high school soon. <laughs> Me too. Uh, um, but I and that kind of leaves. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You had another thing about Ms. Marvel. I was just going to yell again about the killing her off and then not really having a good way of of exploring that. Although the issue explored that with Bruno and like the mind wipe and the non mind wipe, like all of the complicatedness of that kind of sinking in with the one character i did love bruno in this issue yeah i love that willingness to buck against the normal secret trends in kind of this very very natural way yeah i 100 percent agree um i love secret identity shit and um but it's definitely if you want to get realistic about the morality a pretty not nice thing to do Mm -hmm. um but it's a superhero comic we don't have to be uh exactly realistic with shit yeah and the last thing we've got whatever the fuck is going on on araka with the upcoming genesis war holy shit yeah this is actually not as complicated as it seems although as with all these other stories there's a lot of logistics but essentially after uh being absent pretty much since uh ten of swords a genesis apocalypse's wife has uh resurfaced and she's still wielding um, the Annihilation artifact, although now it's a staff instead of a mask. Mm-hmm. But it's the same Annihilation, and it's making her crazy and evil. And she's come back to tell Arako, she's just like, you guys have forgotten the ways. You are trying to start this new thing when we're just like war and violence. If you're not going to be violent, I will make you violent. And then she comes out of the portals and she's invading Mars and uh, that book is now a resistance book on Mars, too. And like shit's bad, mm-hmm. as bad there as on Earth. And yeah. what a strong story choice, right? To have shit go bad in, this, in another place at the exact same time. For different reasons. Yeah, just like uh, if you, and I love it when the space stuff is like giant and then uh, people on Earth are just like, where are you? Where were you, Storm? Where were you when we needed you? And she's like, are you kidding me? I was fighting like a way bigger interdimensional war. <laughs> Fuck off with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, both were were kind of fed by Orcus, which is that's their connection, uh, at least why they kind of went bad at the same time. But yeah, 
at least the the in-story explanation of of why and maybe but i'm loving that loving x-men red for one thing yeah i've never not loved x-men red but it's it's got like a new breath of life it suddenly reinvented itself yet again yeah i am not worried about it that's the wrong word i'm oh no 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 I'm not worried about it. Uh, I'm just seeing kind of these these fun thematic parallels that are underpinning kind of like all the villains in the X-Books right now. Like Children of the Vault and the Annihilation Sword and what Orcus is doing. It's it's an information war and it feels very modern in terms of like what are we afraid of we're afraid of having our choices influenced in these really subtle ways that we don't notice by technology by rhetoric by by all these other things that we think we have control of ourselves and our actions and our decisions but like all it takes is that little whisper to say weak fight and it's about um, what happens when the majority of people make the wrong choice and they choose mm. e- they, and they choose evil and because they, they think uh, it's good and they're wrong about yeah. that. What does that feel like? And that's, you know, that's a powerful theme for pretty obvious reasons, I would imagine. Mm hmm. Yeah. So uh, X-Men books better than ever. <laughs> better than ever. What are we doing next time? Well, we're stepping back. We're finally doing another book group. It is the spooky season. My favorite set of seasons. I'm pretty. We're uh, moving from one form of darkness to another as we finally tackle Frankencastle. <laughs> I am excited about this. I read Frankencastle as it was coming out, and it was such a delightful swerve. I will provide the context. But uh, if you can find it, the first issue of Frankencastle is a, an issue called Dark Rain, The List. Punisher number one. And then after that, we will be reading 2009's Punisher, uh, a Rick Remender, Jerome Opeña joint uh, from issues Ooh. 11 to 21. So that is 2009's Punisher, uh, 11 to 21, and the Dark Reign, the list one shot. All right. So in between then and now, where can they find you? Well, or I guess now and then. Um, you could find me on Tumblr, although I haven't posted a lot recently, on uh, ramblingmoose.tumblr.com. And you can also find me on Letterboxd at Rambling Moose, where I've been pretty active lately. Are you uh, findable on the greater interwebs, Elias? I have an email, and I am refusing to go on to the site that Musk killed. But my email is erosner at multiversitycomics.com. That's the best place to email me. Please do. I like nice notes. This episode was edited by Livian Safir. Our theme music is Excelsior by Carol Romo. And we'll see you again for the spookiest of Punisher issues. Excelsior. Thank you.